Dodo. Last week, during a stay in hospital, I overheard an old man start crying when told he couldn't smoke anymore without risking killing himself. I can't stop now, I heard him say to a nurse. What else would I do? The next evening I saw him, standing in the drizzle outside the big double doors, a soggy cigarette gripped between his fingers. It was the same throughout the hospital, the cardiology and hepatology departments in particular, containing a great number of patients who were there because they couldn't stop eating or drinking, even though they knew what their actions were doing to their bodies. It's difficult to blame them. Who hasn't done something they know they shouldn't, something they know is bad for them? We're often slaves to whims and caprices that threaten to bring our whole lives crashing about our heads. Who hasn't once thought to themselves, sometimes I'm my own worst enemy? I remember when you could get ten for two and a half pence, the old man told me. My old man used to send me to the grocers for him. Let me keep the card to trade with my mates. Now it's just daft. They want to rob me of my pension as well as my health. At the time, chatting to the old man, I couldn't help but think of giant pandas and dodos, those creatures whose inner nature has helped drive them towards destruction. I remember reading that pandas were once carnivorous and, equipped with great speed and ferocity, they were able to hunt down any number of smaller mammals on which to feed. Yet for some unknowable reason, they've long since evolved into herbivores, who survive almost solely on bamboo, though their stomachs and digestive systems remain those of meat-eaters, which means they have to spend more than half their waking hours eating. And in order to conserve the meagre nutrition gained from their new diet, they remain in a slothful and sleepy state at all times. This strange and gradual adaptation has left the few thousand wild pandas living in the mountainous forests of Sichuan province facing extinction. Of course, it would be irresponsible to suggest that human activity and local environmental changes haven't contributed to their situation. Yet nonetheless, it's clear that their gradual evolution has unwittingly helped push them towards annihilation. The evolution of the dodo also seems reckless and incomprehensible, for its ancestors were both graceful and capable of flight. Yet somehow, over many millennia, they transformed into dumpy, waddling birds with stubby, useless wings, a top-heavy gait and a truly monstrous bill. A form which meant that when predators were introduced to their island paradise on Mauritius, they could do nothing to escape their fate. A group of Dutch sailors accidentally landed on the island after being blown from their course by a terrible storm at the end of the 16th century, bringing with them dogs, cats, rats and pigs. And the effects were quick to see. The last recorded sighting of the dodo came less than 80 years later, in 1662. In one of those strange and uncanny coincidences that history seems so fond of, it's interesting to note that this final sighting was also made by a Dutch sailor, who had also turned up 
on the island accidentally, having been shipwrecked there by foul weather and tempest. It has been suggested that within each one of us there is a tiny part that longs for nothing more than to be completely erased from the world. A self-destruct button, if you like. I'm not sure I have much time for such a self-indulgent idea, since it often seems to me that trying to figure out why people do the things they do is a bit like trying to teach a frog how to fly. Not only stupid, but a waste of time besides. On the other hand, perhaps I'm being too hasty. I've known many people who've seemed to do their best to wreck everything decent around them. Some of us have a self-destructive streak. And just a quick glance at the news is often enough to convince me that we are thoughtlessly inching ourselves slowly towards our own extinction. This is not evolution, of course, but something far more innate. Our basic inability to exist in the world as it is. We're driven always to change, either ourselves or the circumstances surrounding us, rather than accept. It's this, of course, that's led to our miraculous development, to culture, civilization, language, music, art, perhaps even love. And this too that has led to murder, oppression, war, suicide, and other far slower forms of self-destruction. Sometimes such thoughts seem overwhelming. Yet whenever I hear people speak of the dodo, or indeed of the way we're destroying the planet we rely on, I often think of those so-called Lazarus species, creatures thought to be long extinct, that against all odds are suddenly rediscovered, having found a way to trick fate. I find their stories comforting. Among the species that have been written off, mourned as lost to the earth forever, and then found again, many years later, to be alive, and indeed thriving, are the Cuban Selenodon, which is a tiny nocturnal animal, looks a bit like a cross between an overgrown shrew and a bug-eyed mole, which was thought to have disappeared more than a hundred years ago, but has instead been hiding from history, deep beneath the earth in its labyrinthine burrows. And there's also the fearsome serpent eagle that lives in the dense forests of Madagascar darting down from among the branches to hook a snake or frog with its talons and bear them up to its nest for a feast. This was thought lost in the 1950s, but it was recently spotted once again. And finally, there's the Kahau of Bermuda, an ashen-featured seabird with a dark nape and patches of sea spray white on its underbelly has only become visible when it stretches its wings and swoops out over the ocean looking for food. The Kahau was thought to have been driven to extinction in the 1620s when colonists introduced dogs and diseases to the island. Yet somehow it survived unseen and more than 300 years later a number of the birds were spotted on a rocky cave nearby, unconcerned by the passing of centuries. These species that have reappeared after many years, as if coming back from the dead, are named, of course, 
after one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. Lazarus was a follower of Jesus from Bethany, near Jerusalem, and his story is told in the Gospel of John. When Lazarus fell sick, the evangelist tells us, his sisters Mary and Martha sent an urgent message to Jesus, begging him to come to them as soon as he could. Yet despite receiving this message in good time, Jesus doesn't ask his disciples to hurry with him right away. And in fact, they remain where they are for two more days before starting the journey towards Bethany. A delay that, in light of later events, seems both monstrous and incomprehensible. But by the time they finally make it to the house, the disciples find that Lazarus has succumbed to his illness and that his corpse has already been placed in the grave. Both his sisters are distraught. Each in turn approaches Jesus and between their sobs, they rebuke him when they say, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. It's a startling accusation. And it's one that Jesus himself seems to accept. For it's hard not to think that it's this charge that provokes the curt and poignant verse that follows. Jesus wept. Then, together, they make their way to the cave in which Lazarus has been buried. As they walk, the crowd that's gathered around them starts whispering that surely this man who opened the eyes of the blind could have cured their friend had he only hurried up, got here a few days earlier. At the cave, Jesus demands that the stone covering the entrance be prized away. He then calls out for the man inside to come forth. And so... Lazarus emerges from the darkness, his hands and feet bound in the clothes of the grave, his pale face still covered, yet his lungs suddenly full of breath once more, his eyes full of tears. Of what happens to Lazarus next, and what he did after being raised from the dead, the book of John tells us little. Of what the man himself has to say about his four days within the grave, we hear nothing at all. No doubt he's grateful, as are his sisters. But should they be? This part of the gospel is unsettling. For Jesus' decision to wait before travelling to Bethany makes the resurrection of Lazarus seem little more than a calculated trick designed to impress those around him. And indeed the account ends with the assertion that many of the men who witnessed the astonishing events that day, then came to believe in Jesus and became his followers. So instead of hurrying to cure him, the gospel suggests that Jesus waits for Lazarus to die so that he can raise him from the dead and so earn a few more followers. But the pain and suffering of his friend and his friend's family might have been spared is treated as though it's beside the point. No one asks why this one man has been given a second chance at life, while everyone else only gets one. The story is troubling, for it makes our fate seem entirely arbitrary, and suggests that we are all at the mercy of whims and impulses, divine or otherwise, that we cannot hope to understand. We don't need to believe in God, or Jesus, or in other abstract concepts such as fate or destiny, 
to conclude that like Lazarus, or like giant pandas, like dodos, our lives and deaths are dictated by forces well beyond our control. Whether that's the grand wrecking ball of history, or nothing more than a few random quirks and mutations of our genes. And, as the old man smoking in the rain outside the hospital seemed to understand, it's easier that way too. Easier to convince ourselves that none of it's our fault. There's nothing we can do. So we give away responsibility to something far greater than our own reckless habits and impulses. What happens when numbers don't add up? Next week's story, Ants, will be available from Tuesday at www.sammeekings.com.